Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. campers and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our episode in a moment, but first, I wanted to talk about a few things. Let's start by thanking our new Patreon member, Justin Greer. Thank you, Justin, for helping support our show. As a Patreon member, Justin has access to special content like bonus shows and some special interviews with families and detectives. If you would like to become a Patreon member, head on over to patreon.com slash Ohio Mysteries. Now, Let's talk about KillerPodcasts.com. We are currently the number two podcast on this website, and we want to be number one. Please share our podcast with friends and family, help them set up their favorite podcast app, and subscribe to Ohio Mysteries. Now let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time for a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist who spent some 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. It's been a while since we had a shipwreck mystery, and most of the time they've been in Lake Erie. But the Ohio River is the graveyard of many ships, and tonight we're going to tell you about one of them, the steamer Kanawha. We don't know exactly how many people died in this tragedy. The passenger list went down with the ship in 1916. So estimates have ranged from between 16 and 20. Up to five bodies never surfaced. And a couple of people who vanished from the face of the earth may well have been aboard the ship, according to their families. We just don't know. It took months to recover the bodies that were found, The river's high and fast current took others to points unknown. But more than 40 crew and passengers survived, so we know what happened that dark and deadly night. One ship's clerk, Fred Hoyt, wrote about his experience. So much of this detail is from his perspective. The Ohio River is nearly a thousand miles long and gives Ohio that unique frilly bottom on our silhouette. The river off our southern shore is technically part of West Virginia, but the river shares our name and has served our river towns from Marietta in the east to Cincinnati in the west for centuries. You can hop on the Ohio River where it begins near Pittsburgh and travel all the way to the Mississippi, then down to New Orleans and out into the Gulf of Mexico without ever touching dry land, if you have a mind to. That should give you an idea of how important the river was to the expansion of our country. But even in later years, 
after our country evolved and paved roads that enabled cars and trucks to make those trips, the Ohio River remained a convenient option for local transport. Our story takes place in 1916 and on board the steamship Kanawha, which had been a regular on the river ever since it was built in Ironton, Ohio, two decades earlier. The Kanawha was a favorite of Pittsburgh school teachers who took their Easter and summer vacations on the boat, newlyweds who would take it to honeymoon destinations, and during the holidays, families from Ohio were carried off to spend the season with loved ones. The steamer was also preferred by a lot of businesses. The boat was always loaded with poultry and farm products and whatever other items river towns needed to move. Its regular route started in Pittsburgh, took the river to the area of Mount Pleasant and Gallipolis in southwest Ohio. Then it would turn south into the Kanawha River and go to West Virginia's capital of Charleston. It made this round trip every week. Our story tonight begins just before the sun sets on January the 4th, 1916. The Kanawha pulled away from Pittsburgh that blustery winter day with about 20 passengers and 45 crew. The river was running high and fast that winter, but there was every reason to think the Kanawha and her crew were up to the task. Captain Brady Berry from Williamstown, West Virginia, had been at the helm for 15 years as a pilot and the past three years as its captain. The other pilots, engineers, and mates, many of whom were from Ohio's river towns, were all veterans. Fred Hoyt himself, the witness for much of what we're sharing in this episode, had made the round trip from Pittsburgh to Charleston 130 times. The ship had also recently been overhauled with a new battery of boilers installed. It was running smoothly. The only thing she was missing was a large metal lifeboat. It was removed a few weeks earlier. Later, nobody could say why it hadn't been returned. But the ship was short its usual life-saving apparatus, an oversight they would come to regret. The first 172 miles of the trip were uneventful. The steamer plowed the frigid night air and arrived at Marietta the next day on schedule. That's where something happened that set into motion a series of fateful events. At Marietta, a man named Henry Best owned the wharf boat. A wharf boat is used when a dock is impractical because the river's height is unpredictable. After Captain Brady Berry pulled up to the wharf boat, Best approached him with a demand, really. He had two barrels of lubricating oil that needed to be delivered to the landing at Little Hocking River. Little Hocking is a tributary that flows through Washington County, that's the county that Marietta is in, and empties into the Ohio River. Henry Best was adamant that the delivery was a rush order and had priority. Captain Barry protested at first, given the high winds, the current, and the fact that there was ongoing construction of Lock 19 near the mouth of the tributary. He thought entering Little Hocking would be difficult and dangerous. 
but Best won the argument, and the captain agreed to the delivery. While Best and Captain Barry sorted this detour out, the clerk, Fred Hoyt, looked out on the landing and saw his mom hailing him. Marietta was his hometown. He made his way to the landing to visit with her for a few minutes, but she wasn't there for small talk. Mrs. Hoyt had come to tell him about a premonition that there would be a disaster unless Captain Barry tied the Kanawha up and waited for the river to calm. Fred understood his mom's concerns. He looked out over the river and he saw the heavy swells. The river had reached 30 feet in this area, which was way higher than usual. Not one to easily dismiss his mother, Fred thought briefly about taking her advice. But how would he explain it? And so he bid her a reluctant farewell and returned to his post. Soon after, the Kanawha, with its new load, pulled away from the wharf boat and headed downstream. There was one more stop before the Little Hawking, the city of Parkersburg, West Virginia. It was there, after another leg of roiling water and stiff winds, that another crew member had a bad feeling. The cook, Tom Sams, told Captain Barry that, frankly, he was scared and couldn't continue with them. Captain Barry watched as Tom walked down the landing gangway to shore, headed for the B&O train depot to catch a ride home. It was also at Parkersburg that Fred Hoyt tried to get a couple of passengers to leave the boat. A woman named Mrs. Fitzpatrick was traveling with her six-year-old son, and they were scheduled to get off near Belleville, West Virginia. But Fred suspected that landing would be flooded and that she'd be forced to continue to Reedsville, Ohio. So he suggested she get off now in Parkersburg and take the morning train home. Mrs. Fitzpatrick thanked him for the advice but declined it. A few hours later, she and her son would be dead. Now the hop from Parkersburg to Little Hawking was less than an hour. The Kanawha dropped off the barrels of oil as promised, then tried to return to the main stream of the river. But the swift current and the stiff winds proved to be too much. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The ship turned broadside to the waves. Captain Barry took the wheel from his pilot. He struggled to bring her back on course. The river was so high that the new Lock 19 was completely submerged. That would have been okay. The Kanawha was a light steamer and rode high in the water, and she could have navigated over the lock's walls. But there was another problem. The lock had light towers on each side, and those towers extended above the walls. At 7.20 p.m., in the pitch dark, the Kanawha smashed into one of the light towers. 
Fred Hoyt was talking to a steward when it happened. The men were nearly thrown to their knees. It was a violent enough blow that Fred told his crewmate, Lloyd, I fear she won't stand that. Fred was right. The tower had torn a hole in the starboard side of the Kanawha's wooden hole, just forward of the boilers. The boat immediately started tilting severely on the verge of capsizing. At this point, Fred saw four or five women near the passenger cabins. He intended to rush back to guide them, but just then, the generator that had been providing electricity to the ship was flooded, and all the lights went off. What remained was a dark so deep, people would later say they had trouble seeing their hands in front of their eyes. Fred had no hope of reaching the women on the other side. He felt hot steam sweeping over him as the furnaces died out, and then he felt the ice water as it rose and swirled above his knees. The ship was sinking. His only hope was to climb up. He scrambled onto the roof. Two crewmen already there dragged him the rest of the way. The ship sunk to the level of the roof, then stopped. Fred could only surmise that maybe the thousands of empty egg crates and chicken coops in the hold had given the boat an unexpected buoyancy. Now those who didn't make it to the roof had to either scramble to find wreckage in the river to help them stay afloat, or they were trapped in the ship below. Many passengers found themselves stuck in their staterooms with doors that wouldn't open because the frames had been distorted by the collision. One lifeboat was dispatched with about 15 people on board, and they made it safely to the Ohio side of the river. But a second lifeboat was sunk on the opposite side of the ship, and what should have been the largest of the lifeboats had never been replaced. Captain Brady Berry survived the sinking. He, Fred Hoyt, and a couple dozen others rode the submerged ship as the wind carried it further down the river. Two miles from Lock 19, the ship shuddered as it caught on a rock dike at the head of Newberry Island. It was a welcomed pause because a hero arrived on the scene. Harold B. Wright was a young employee at Lock 19 who had seen the accident happen and immediately pursued the ravaged vessel using a yawl boat owned by the U.S. Corps of Engineers. When the Kanawha snagged on the rocks, he worked quickly to load the small boat with survivors, took them to shore, then hurried back for a second trip. Fred Hoyt said Wright left a lantern for the crew that was still stuck on board, waiting their turn. The small light gave them courage, he said. But then time ran out. As Wright was taking his second group of passengers to safety, the Kanawha was freeing itself from those rocks. Fred could feel the hull grinding as the current pushed it free. Then the boat began to roll. Those who remained on board had to navigate the spinning ship like the outside of a hamster wheel. When it was over, 
The roof was at the bottom of the boat, and the hull was bobbing at the surface. Fortunately, everyone who remained successfully negotiated this frightening turn. Then the Kanawa was on the move again, down the river. It floated another two miles to Mustafa Island, and there it lodged for good, and everyone who remained was rescued. It was 9.15 p.m., just a little more than two hours after the disaster had begun. The survivors of the Kanawa were scattered over several miles of shoreline. Many of those pulled from the freezing water were taken to local homes and hotels and warmed up before roaring fires. Fred said he and others took refuge in a small cottage where he was able to dispatch a wire to his mom and Marietta, reassuring her he was alive. The B&O Railroad ran a special train out of Parkersburg to go find and pick up any survivors it could and get them safely home. After the tragedy, people shared their heartbreaking stories. Probably none as heartbreaking as survivor E.W. Edgerton of Washington, D.C. He lost his mother and father, two of his brothers, both their wives, and his nephew. He said they had all just finished supper and some of them retired to their cabin to play cards when the collision occurred. That's where those who died became trapped. He added that many passengers had been wearing life jackets earlier in the day out of concern for the weather, but that crew member Bert Wolf told them they were in no danger, so many discarded the preservers. He said shortly after shedding their preservers, the collision occurred. The boat lurched, and several people were thrown into the water. Also, it turned out that Fred Hoyt's mom, who rushed to meet him with her premonition, and that ship's cook, who abandoned the ship in Parkersburg, weren't the only ones who had bad feelings about the Kanawha that day. Mr. and Mrs. E.C. Atkinson were from Racine, Ohio, a village in Meigs County, but their daughter's family lived in Pennsylvania. Before Christmas, they took a train out to spend the holidays with them, but they thought it would be fun to take the boat home. They bought tickets for the Kanawha. Their daughter, Mrs. Luther Dickey, objected strenuously, begging them to return on the train. Please do not go back by that boat, she told them. Her parents thought it was a silly protest. What could happen? They were looking forward to the river trip, and they insisted on doing it. After they left, Mrs. Dickey became so full of anxiety, she was bedridden. For two days, she tossed and turned with worry. Her fears might have been inexplicable, but they were not unfounded. Her dad survived the disaster. Her mom did not. Mrs. Atkinson was listed among the missing for nearly a week before her remains were recovered from inside the ship. It took that long for authorities to even try to recover the bodies. Because of the river's bad behavior, they spent days worried that disturbing the boat would release its victims 
and the currents would carry them away. Two days after the tragedy, they had still only recovered one body, Anna Campbell of Pomeroy, Ohio, who served as a chambermaid on the steamer, was found in a clump of willows near Harris Ferry. Authorities believed she had survived the sinking and made it to some wreckage, but died from the winter's exposure. Then a second body was found, Mrs. F.A. Patrick of Belleville, West Virginia. But best guess was that up to 20 people were still missing. Among the Ohioans they couldn't find were crewman Bert Wolf and Arthur Beaver. Bert Wolf was the ship's purser and a 15-year veteran of the Kanawha. He was from Rockland, near Marietta. He was missing for so long, his family offered a reward of $200 to anyone who could find his body. Arthur Beaver was a ship's watchman from Dorcas in Miggs County. It was sheer coincidence that Wolf and Beaver were both found on the same day later that spring. On March the 25th, Beaver was found 18 miles from the scene of the disaster, washed up at Wells Run. At the time of those discoveries, news reports said there were still five passengers missing. Other Ohioans killed on the Kanawha included steward Lloyd G. of Gallipolis and Mrs. Ulysses Beagle from Racine, both of whom were recovered more than a week after the accident. The shell of the Kanawha was recovered, but the Ohio River has absorbed many of her sister ships. I couldn't find an estimate of how many are buried in the bottom. It's more than 160 feet at its deepest point, but even where it's only 30 or 40 feet deep, the current easily lifts mud and silt up and over anything that rests at the bottom too long. There are boats, at least one airplane, and untold cars. Muhammad Ali said he threw his gold medal in the river. And we know from our previous episodes, it's probably the final resting place of a lot of murder victims. But even in the 21st century, the Ohio River is a big part of our economy. Every day, barges filled with everything from coal to grain plow the waters. You can even catch a river cruise if you just want to sail it for leisure. Just maybe don't think too hard about what's lying below the surface. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this in every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Ohio Mysteries is also proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Please be sure to check out more podcasts just like ours at evergreenpodcasts.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.